This is Faithful Sayings, broadcast by the Leon Valley Church of Christ. Appreciate you tuning in today. We're in Romans chapter 8. We're finally picking up in our study in the book of Romans, the series that we began several weeks ago, and I've been out of pocket for a while. I apologize for that. But now we're back in Romans chapter 8, and hopefully we can get going with um, one or two podcasts a week with uh, our two series, one in Romans and the other in, in Proverbs. Again, thanks for joining me. Hope you'll follow along in the text. I want to start by reading Romans chapter 8, verse 18, and then verses 24 and 25. So Romans 8, verse 18, and then we'll drop down to verses 24 and 25. This is going to encapsulate what I think is the main get, uh, at least of our study today. So Paul says in verse 18, that I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For in hope we have been saved, but hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he already sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, with perseverance we wait eagerly for it. A preacher once said that the time of our suffering is short, but the bliss and reward of heaven is eternal. And that's what Paul is wanting to impress upon us right here in this text, specifically verse 18, that what we suffer here in this present time it just can't hold a candle to what's going to be, um, what what's going to be revealed, the glory that is to be revealed in us or to us in the final judgment. You know, previously we considered Paul's struggle against the flesh in in chapter seven, verses fourteen through twenty-five, and we saw that there is this charge to put to death the deeds of the body. I mean, the the body of, of flesh and and fleshly appetites. And that we do that by receiving and obeying the Holy Spirit's teaching through Scripture, which is by and large what um, chapter 7 is building to and what the previous part portion of chapter 8, verses 1 through 17, have been talking about. And then that leads us into this closing discussion here in chapter 8 about the, the hope that we have if we follow through with obeying the, the, this Holy Spirit's teaching. So in our context... When Paul talks about the sufferings of, of this life, which are not worthy to be compared to the glory that is to be revealed, he is specifically speaking of the struggle that we have um, each day and our spirit against our flesh, the, the warring of the spirit against the flesh as we, as we are striving to apply the word of God. Uh, so often we quote Romans chapter 8 and verse 18 and we think of sufferings as, uh, you know, temporal circumstances, painful circumstances. And certainly suffering includes those things biblically. But here in this context specifically, he's talking about struggling, uh, suffering in, in, in the sense of warring against the, of the flesh, enduring that and, and following after the Spirit's teaching rather than fleshly appetite. So we could certainly apply that verse um, you know, that that way, I don't think there's anything wrong with doing that. But I do think it's important to understand uh, specifically what Paul, the suffering that Paul is speaking about here. You know, elsewhere he will mention uh, sufferings of the other kind, those those circumstantial sufferings of persecution or a, just affliction in general. Like in Second Corinthians four seventeen, for example, he says, "For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, works for us a far more exceeding." An eternal weight of glory. Uh, your translation might say that this momentary light affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory 
And uh, that's that's the idea. Notice he uses glory, glory in both contexts, Romans chapter 8 and 2 Corinthians 4. And he's also talking about affliction, suffering in both texts, that this is the way to glory, eternal glory that is going to be revealed. So the glory is the same in both texts, the, the, which is the final exaltation of God's people, which, again, cannot be compared to what must be endured in this, this life. And this is the glory that Paul is saying we should be eagerly hoping for, um, that, that that glorious state in heaven where, you know, finally we will break free ultimately from the futility of this fallen world will be ultimately set free from um, uh, sin and disease and death and, and decay and sorrow and, and you know, all the things that sin entails. Um, and we'll be set free from wrestling with, with the flesh. We'll have new new bodies. And so that's the glory that Paul is, is wanting us to, to look to and hope for. And he's reminding of reminding us uh here of this this glory this state that is to come so don't don't give up in other words we with perseverance he says we eagerly wait for it so this is this kind of waiting biblically and i think all waiting biblically used in this way is not just a passive kind of sit on your hands you know waiting room kind of waiting you know where you're just looking at a magazine or something but notice paul says with perseverance so this waiting entails action this waiting this hoping for glory with perseverance entails doing something, right? And we uh, can look to other texts uh, to to see that uh, biblically also. Just uh, for one example, uh, go, go to Hebrews uh, for just a moment. Hebrews chapter 6. So here is another text about hope um, and the importance of clinging to hope. Hebrews chapter 6. And notice how the, the writer uh, discusses uh, waiting here and hoping and what uh, hope entails. So this is Hebrews chapter 6 and verse, let's begin reading in verse 9, just to see the overlap here and, and further support the biblical point that, again, perseverance, uh, eagerly waiting for the glory with perseverance is not just a passive kind of activity. Uh, look how the Hebrew writer couches hope here in, in the context. Uh, verse 9 of Hebrews 6, he says, Beloved, we are convinced of better things concerning you, things that accompany salvation, though we are speaking in this way. So he's just chastised them previously for their immaturity and their lack of growth and uh, you know, and some things regarding Melchizedek. And so verse 9, that's what verse 9 is talking about. Even though he's rebuked them and chastised them, he's saying, I'm convinced of better things. Even though I've just said what I've just said, I'm still convinced of better things concerning you in your salvation. Verse 10, for God is not unjust so as to forget your work and the love which you have shown toward his name in having ministered and in still ministering to the saints. <clears throat> so he's calling to mind their previous work of service and encouraging them, uh, reminding them and us that God takes note of that. Verse 11, and he says, we desire that each one of you show the same diligence so as to realize the full assurance of hope until the end. Now notice that. I want you to keep doing what you're doing, in other words, be diligent, exercise diligence. This is what I want, verse 11, or desire. So that why? So that you will realize the full assurance of hope until the end. So notice the connection between hope, having hope and the full assurance of hope and the diligent service that he is calling them to participate in. All right, verse 12, so that you will not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience 
inherit the promises. Well, that sounds a whole lot like persevering in a word, doesn't it? Working through faith and patience inherit the promises. So if we're going to cling to hope, if we're going to have the full assurance of hope, the Bible is consistent and clear that this is not a passive, we can't afford to be passive in this life, that, you know, uh, spirituality, uh, faith, biblically, is not an inert kind of thing. It's not just an idea. It's not a feeling. It's not, uh, you know, an attitude. Uh, It certainly entails all those things, um, but uh, it it is very practical, first and foremost, is what I understand the New Testament to be teaching, that there is a a diligence, a ministry, there is a, a, a perseverance that needs to be exercised in order to realize the full assurance of hope, in order to have hope, in order to have the confidence that the New Testament says we can have about the glory that is to come. So let's go back to our original text uh, here. Again, glory is the exaltation of, of God's people being released from, again, all the, the terrible things of this life. And so Paul has more to say about the Christian suffering here and now, and I think by heeding his words, we will come to, um, we will come closer to the proper perspective and attitude we should have as as God's children. Um, so, first of all, uh, before we begin this discussion, let's talk about what it means to be a child of God, how one is made a child of God, and the the scripture is clear in places like John one, uh, verse twelve and thirteen that those who obey Jesus Christ are brought into fellowship with God, into a relationship, we can say, wherein they are now his his children. John says, as many as received him, that is Jesus, to, him, to them he gave the right to become children of God to those who believe on his name, John 1, 12 and 13. So we learn in this context that if if we are children of God, in Romans chapter 8, and in, in this, you know, our original context, that if we are children of God, we are heirs also, verse 17. In Romans eight seventeen, Paul says, If we are children, then heirs also, and heirs of God, and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with Him, so that we might also be glorified with Him. So notice there again the, collection, uh, the connection between uh, in, enduring, persevering, suffering, just as Christ did, so that we may also share in His glory, so that we might truly understand that we are heirs and have this hope of that an heir would have of a great inheritance of, of glory. So being a true son or daughter of God necessarily involves suffering. And that's what Paul wants to drive home here. It's that not only does it entail suffering, but this suffering will be well worth it. Whatever form it takes, whether it's persecution, affliction, you know, temporal circumstances that are difficult and painful, you know, emotional suffering, mental suffering, physical suffering, all kinds, right? If we persevere and remain true to our Lord and loyal to Him and love Him, right? Ministering to the saints, continuing to serve, as the Hebrew writer said there in Hebrews 6, 10 and following, then that suffering will be well worth it. But if we're just suffering and we're sitting on our hands, well, then we're not, we are not waiting. We are not persevering in the way that the scripture has called us to persevere and we have no reason to hope. So it's this. This is a message that this message Paul is giving us is going to help us persevere in the faith and cling to our hope and show us how to cling to our hope. So Paul goes about uh, if we pay attention here, I think our faith will be strengthened and our hope will be deepened. Um, now let's think about how that's going to happen. What and and more about what Paul has to say here. So Paul puts the suffering of God's people 
in context so that we might have the right perspective. And he does this a couple of different ways. So first, he's going to show us that suffering is historical and universal. In other words, it's not just it's not just about us. Uh, one of the things that you know, one of the ways that we get in our own way and we fail and we don't endure suffering as we should is we um, we look inwardly and we can't see beyond our noses and we just get fixated on our own suffering. And Paul wants us to understand suffering is not just about you. It's not just about me. It's it goes further back than that in time, and it's universal. Uh, verse eighteen, Paul says, "For I consider that the sufferings of this present time again are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed." So yes, there is suffering present now, this present time. But then Paul says, "Creation." In verse twenty, he says, "The whole creation was subjected to such futility." Uh, so this is something again. It reaches back into the past. Past. And in verse 21, he says the creation itself will be set free. So suffering and futility in this life had a beginning. And Paul is reminding us is that it will have an end also in, in the future. And we want to be part of the glorious future, not part of the not part of eternal suffering and torment that is to, to come. So between the distant past and at some point in the future, all of history is and will be part of suffering and groaning, as as Paul says here in the context. So all of that to say, I can't allow myself to think that I or my family or my time has been singled out for suffering because the groaning and corruption and futility of which Paul speaks have been in the world for all of history since the fall of man. And it will be until Jesus returns, as Jesus himself promised. In this world, you will have trouble. You will have tribulation. But take courage, take heart. I have overcome the world. So in looking to him and his promises, we can have hope. But again, that's contingent upon following through. So furthermore, Paul wants us to understand. He wants us to know that all of creation is involved in groaning and frustration and corruption and suffering. He says there in verse 22, For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. Uh, So the whole creation is groaning. Again, I, I can't think that when I suffer, it has to do only with me my personal situation, I am part of and you are part of a groaning that all creation experiences. So, you know, Paul characterizes this groaning further. Verse 20, when he says that um, it will be uh, set free from that slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. So he's characterizing corruption and creation as being a slave to corruption. So your suffering is not merely personal. There's a bigger explanation. Again, it's part of that universal pattern. And Paul says, again, it's all been subjected to futility. And then he explains, but it wasn't done so willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. Is the rest of verse 21. So yes, the whole creation is in the grip of futility, this present creation. And not just mankind even, and not just you, and not just me. Uh, but, but all of it. We see, you know decay and death all around us in the natural world. So the idea of utility presented in this passage is one of constant instability and vanity, things wearing out, uh, you know, the cycle of life and death continues. The certainty of death and suffering is there with the beginning of each new life. You know, it, it's every life ends, uh, not only in humanity, not only with people, but in nature. And all creation is, is subject to this cycle. So there is in this world a pattern of decay and ruin and perishing 
as Jesus says in Matthew 6, 19, there's, there's moth and rust that destroy and there's thieves that break in and steal. Right? And his point in that text also in Matthew chapter 6 is not to store up treasure here because all it's all wearing out. It's all winding down. It's all being broken. It's all being destroyed. People are taking it. And so don't store up treasures for yourselves here, but in heaven. So I must, again, I must keep myself from thinking that all my suffering has to do with something I did as an individual. Not necessarily, no. It's true that some suffering in my life and in your life is the direct result of even sin specifically, as First Peter mentions in First Peter two and chapter two and verse four and verse uh, excuse me chapter four and verse fifteen, uh, but that's not the explanation for suffering in general that we just observe in, in the world. Um, so Paul shows us that again the subjection of creation to futility was um, was a judgment. So it says there in verse twenty, uh, excuse me, verse. Um, Yes, verse 20, that the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. So God, it God is God who did this. It is God who subjected creation to futility, but he did so in hope. Um, it didn't, you know, this futility didn't arise naturally. It was subjected. Um, Paul is referring to God's doing. And we know it's God because um, it was... You know, this text isn't talking about Adam who subjected creation to futility or Satan by his temptation of Adam and Eve. Um, Adam, you know, Adam would not subject the world in futility and hope. Neither would Satan. You know, Adam had no plan for the revelation of the children of God in due time. Neither did Satan. He perverted a different outcome and he still does. So absolutely the person referred to in verse 20 is God. And the futility we observe, again, the cycle in life and death that we've been talking about, our participation in that cycle, our present suffering, was established by God so that we might have the hope that one day creation will no longer be subjected to futility and death, that there will be, in fact, a new creation as revealed in the New Testament. This one will be burned up and will go away. Peter describes that in Second Peter chapter 3 and verse 13, that there is a, a day coming wherein all the elements will be burned up with fire. But in places like Revelation 21 and verse 4, we find one day that there will be that new creation. There will be no more death and no more suffering, as, as the writer explains there. Let's go to Revelation 21 and verse 4 for just a moment to, to see uh, one place wherein we can see the, the Bible substantiate this. I've been saying it over and over again. Uh, you know, there's going to be a new creation, but let's look at the text with our own eyes and see it. Uh, so John says in, in Revelation 21, beginning in verse 1, I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there is no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men. And he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. And so that's a beautiful and it's a very wonderful promise that should give us great comfort. And Peter says in Second Peter 3, in verse 13, that we should be looking for this new heaven and new earth where righteousness dwells. So does that describe you and me? 
Are we in fact looking forward to that? I mean, we can, we acknowledge surely if we're honest with ourselves that this physical creation for all the beauty that it has and all the glory of God that it declares at the same time scripture reveals is it is winding down and it is destined for destruction. But God has a promise of a new creation for his people. And this new creation has not yet come, at least not to us who are here. But the present creation waits eagerly for the revelation of the sons of God. And so the word Paul uses, you know, communicates the idea of straining one's neck forward to see what's coming next. When he's talking about creation, eagerly awaiting or expecting the revelation of the sons of God, it's it's the idea literally from the word is to strain your neck forward when you're trying to see you know, around a corner, what's coming next or something like this. So verse 18 says that's something that will be revealed to us. And verse 19 says that we ourselves will be revealed, that Christians will be revealed. So what does that mean? Well, it means that right now the children of God do not look glorious. The children of God don't appear to be glorious here and now. Um, we look pretty much like everybody else. If we are a child of God, we get hungry and tired and sick, we suffer from the same diseases, we age, we die, um, we are killed, and on the way to the grave, we make some progress in overcoming, or at least we should be making progress in overcoming our selfishness and pride and greed, but we never get beyond the need here and now to be justified by the sacrifice of Christ. As Paul explains in Romans 7, verses 24 and 25. That struggle will rage on until our dying breath and suffering is going to continue. But Jesus said the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. And Paul said when Christ who is your life appears, then you will also appear with him in glory in Colossians 3 and verse 4. So when verse 19 speaks of the revealing of the sons of God, we can know that we will... We can know what will be revealed, even if we can't fully comprehend the extent of the freedom of the glory of the children of God, as Paul discusses here in Romans 8. He's impressing upon us, again, the glory that it will be wonderful and that we will be glorified with Christ, and we can know that, and that our bodies and minds and hearts will be completely renovated and changed uh, so as to, to not even be capable of suffering or mourning or what you or death even all these things that we've been reading about in places like revelation 21 and, and others um, and also no longer any sin when christ appears john says when christ appears we shall be like him or we shall see him as he is so this isn't just glory in the sense of um you, you know sharing a nature so to speak in appearance and and so insofar as what we're subjected to and and uh, or no longer subjected to, I should say, in, in disease and death, but also the struggle is over against the enemy, against temptation, and there's no more sin. You know, you think about the implications of that. Everything that is wrong with this world and that has come to be wrong with this world is the result of sin and the fall of man. And that everyone since then has chosen to sin. It's not that we must sin, but everyone chooses to. And there is no hope in that. There is only destruction and sadness 
and pain spiritually, mentally, physically, however you want to look at it. It is it's terrible. And Christ is the only hope that you and I have of overcoming that sin here and now. Again, sin, the source of all pain, all loss, all sadness. Christ is the again the only way that you can you and I can overcome that and be forgiven of it and have hope of this glory that is to be revealed in his people. And all that that entails, the release from the struggle, the release from sin finally and ultimately, the release from death, the release from pain. So do you look forward to that? Do you hope for that? Do you have that hope? When Paul says that these wonderful things are for the children of God, and then the Bible defines God's children as those who have obeyed Jesus Christ in places like Hebrews 5 and verse 9, where wherein it says that he is the source of salvation to all those who obey him. It's making it clear that it is Christians who will be revealed as the sons of God. And nobody else. Presently, we may not look like much from external appearances. And all the sufferings we experience here are temporary and ultimately lead to glory. Pain does not feel good, but the Bible is saying we can endure it with joy even and hope, knowing that it will all be worth it. We hope for what we do not see. Remember verse 25 of chapter 8, and with perseverance we wait eagerly for it. If it were going to be easy, we wouldn't need perseverance. If you were in a hospital, for example, you might hear a groan of pain, or something similar. Maybe even someone cry out in pain. And you recognize that it's the voice of a woman and you're not sure what's going on, but you realize that you are in the maternity ward. And you are led to conclude that, well, she's in a world of hurt right now, but uh, she has good things coming. Hopefully if all is well with her child. So you feel differently about that pain or that <clears throat> that groan that you hear because some pain leads to life and some pain leads to death. So you feel differently about that groan knowing that you're in the maternity ward versus, you know, the the cancer unit or oncology ward. So we find in scripture what we find in scripture is for the children of God all pain leads to life if we endure it in a godly way. And all the groanings of this world are birth pains leading to glory. So if you have obeyed the gospel, then continue to entrust yourself to the one who judges righteously. So that you can have the full assurance of hope. Hebrews 6, 10, 11. Knowing that God will fulfill all of his promises to you. And know that in hope you have been saved. So wait for it eagerly and expectantly and patiently in joy. And if you have not obeyed Christ... Remember the words of John that we read earlier. As many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. Do you believe Jesus Christ is who he says he is? He says you must for you to have any hope. In John 8, 24, he says, Unless you believe that I am, 
you will die in your sins. And there were many people who believed in him, as in John chapter 12 and verse 40 and following. There were many people who believed in him, but never confessed him for fear of other men. The Bible says that they love the praise of men rather than the praise of God, or they love the glory of men rather than the glory of God. And so, even though they believed Jesus, they did not confess him. They did not obey him. Jesus asked the question in places like Luke 6, 46, Why do you call me Lord and do not do what I say? So there's no shortage of people in the world who acknowledge Jesus as Lord, to be sure, but do they do what he says? If you acknowledge him as Lord, do you do what he says? He says in Luke 13, 3, Unless you repent, you will perish. And so, there are conditions that he has placed before us. He's telling us what believing in him and calling him Lord and acknowledging him Lord actually looks like. It entails repentance, it entails obedience, as we saw in Hebrews 5.9. He is the source of salvation to those who obey him. And that point about confession in John 12 comes up again in places like Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10, where it says, With the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. When the people heard that message on the day of Pentecost in the book of Acts, when Peter had told them they had crucified the Lord of glory, they believed. But unlike those men in John chapter 12, they were ready to do something about it. And they even asked the question in verse 37. They asked Peter, what are we going to do? What should we do? And Peter, true to his Lord, told them, repent. In verse 38, the very next verse of Acts chapter 2, he says, repent. And each of you be baptized and you will receive the forgiveness of sins. So just as Jesus said, repent, in Luke 13, 3, Peter also says, repent. And just as Jesus said, be baptized, in Mark 16, 16, so Peter also says, be baptized, and you can receive the forgiveness of sins. That's how you can be a child of God. Maybe you're ready to do that, and you're not sure where to turn or who to talk to. Well, I'd love to visit with you about that, if that's your desire. And you can contact me at leonvalleychurch at gmail.com. Or visit our website at leonvalleychurch.org and you can find a contact form there and a phone number to call and get a hold of me that way. I hope to hear from you. I hope to hear your questions or comments. Um, please don't hesitate to call or to, to accept this invitation. I'm Jason Garcia, and this has been Faithful Sayings. <laughs>